I really don't think a CISO should exist or should need to exist in a perfect world. I think the CISO really should be the, the head of architecture or the, the mantle oh. of CISO probably really ought to be in the head of architecture. Welcome to The Threat Show for the week of December the 12th. This week's special guest is Nathan Case, an executive with over 10 years of planning and implementing technology programs in healthcare and other industries, currently working as a security advocate for Datadog. He gives critical advice related to security hygiene, S-bombs, and how up-and-coming security leaders can do things right in an ever-changing landscape. The team also discusses four major threats you need to know about. Enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Threat Show. I'm Robert Wagner, and with me co-hosts Darian and Chris. And with us, we have special guest Nathan Case. Thank you for joining us today, Nathan. Uh, happy to be here, man. We're going to do our usual. We're going to burn down through this week's threats. Nathan's going to um, talk to us a little bit about security hygiene and S-bombs. And if you don't know what an S-bomb is, stay tuned because we're going to tell you. But with that, Darian, what a week it's been in threats this week, huh? It's not letting up. <laughs> you know, we thought that maybe the holidays would uh, be a little less less crazy, but no. So we've got a, a grab bag for today's interesting threats. I think the first one is, surprise, surprise, there's another Chrome zero-day uh, vulnerability that was released last weekend or just before the weekend. Google's been pretty tight-lipped about the details of this because it's one that could be actively exploited by a number yeah. of different threat groups. But all we know that is it's a type confusion vulnerability specific to the V8 JavaScript engine. Quite frankly, I, I think it's safe to say that we'll probably hit 10 zero days for Google Chrome by the end of this year, at least. Yeah. So we're, we're taking bets on this one? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You got iOS going too, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in terms of, you know, how organizations have been dealing with this problem, you know, Qualys seems to believe that the patch cycle seem to be getting better and better, maybe because there's built-in update mechanisms into Chrome itself. But in terms of, you know, when these get released, it's anyone's guess. You know, you think that, you know, maybe it's done every Patch Tuesday or Friday, but no, it's in some cases, it's even released over a major holiday. If I were a betting person, I would say maybe the next 10th Chrome Zero Day could happen between Christmas and New Year's. Who knows? All right. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Well, Santa's <laughs> going to bring you a present, man. That's what it is. Yeah, right. <laughs> They're pretty predictive. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and Nate, you were saying you were noticing that some people don't even know how to update Chrome, which, which I found surprising. What, tell me about that. So one of the things that I've noticed is I've got a couple of groups that I chat with on the side. And one of the things that came up was, gee, how do we update or how do we keep track of the plugins slash updates in Chrome that we're doing or not doing? And it's interesting as a CISO to have to ask that question. And I think there's something to be said here, which is if you're a CISO and you don't know the answer to that question, definitely like find a group of people that you can ask that question to. Like there's there's no shame or harm in it. You need to be open with like, my guys don't, or my people don't know how to do this thing, help us. It's interesting because the MDM solutions out there, if they're not set up correctly, can have a really hard time evaluating what's going on inside of Chrome sometimes. And so I saw this and thought of a couple of hospitals and places that I've I've talked with and, and know relatively well. And man, that was, yeah, that's that's a real problem. And getting those things done on a day-to-day -day basis can be hard to do. 
So the problem isn't that people don't see the big update button that shows up in Chrome. It has more to do with the management systems. Well, a little bit of both, certainly. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's definitely that side of, you know, gee, go click the update button. But I've got plenty of friends who are, let's let's leave it at not technical, that don't look at the little <laughs> update button. I mean, like, I don't know how many friends you have when they hand you your phone and you look at it, and it's got that red 10 next to the settings <laughs> button. And you go ahead and click it. And sure enough, it's like the last 10 iOS updates that nobody bothered to do. <laughs> All right. Um, it, it is what it is. I mean, there, there's yeah. definitely a portion of it that is, there's an update button up here, go click it. Well, for the recording over here. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's definitely that. But there's also an MDM question about, do you have your MDM set up so that you can get an answer for things like this? And if you don't, definitely call your MDM provider and ask. I, I think uh, Google would help us out a little bit if they maybe change that little button based on the criticality um, and a button that just says update versus we have a zero day or something that communicates. Changing color maybe, oh, yeah. Right, how yeah. critical that is. <laughs> hey, it's blinking red. Right, you might maybe yeah. more likely to push it as opposed to, you know, they just have some new code revisions that they want to push out. And I mean, Whatever. like I said, thank you to the Google team and everybody else doing the research because this is definitely one of those sunshine fixes all things type of a thing or fixes, fixes the <laughs> right. bad things. I mean, this is, yeah, this is how that works. I was going to say, whenever I open them up by phone, my eye goes straight to the 18,000 unread emails I have. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that we're with our enterprise clients, that, that we're getting a lot of questions about this. And, you know, the first thing I did was have our guys uh, update all their, all their Chrome browsers and things like that. And, we're getting a lot of questions specifically from companies that go through a tremendous amount of M&A about browser protection. And so, because that's, that's kind of how they're, how they're using protected browsers, secure browsers, as they go through the M&A process to be able to, you know, be able to control and, and integrate systems. Right. On. But um, it's kind of the first step. And so, so you've got companies like Talon and, and Island, both investor, both invested by uh, CrowdStrike. You know, they do protected browsers, but they're all built on Chromium. We're still trying to figure out if there's, if they're inheriting some of these challenges in in the in the in the builds. But the one thing that we're doing right now is our advice that we're giving to enterprise clients. A lot of companies can't afford this, but we're having people invest in CDR systems, which is content disarm and uh, uh, reconstruct solutions, which basically takes out takes any content that comes in and it goes down the meta level and takes out any bad any bad things. And so there's companies like Votero and those guys that are doing that. And I think it's a good, it's kind of a, just a better fail safe as well. Um, so like with PDFs, it, it'll clean every PDF that you get. And every attachment oh, wow. that you get, yeah, it cleans them all out. So so both on email and browsers um, is is where I would, where we're, we're recommending clients to, to, to cover their, cover their perimeter of that. Right on. Yeah. There's a couple of really interesting open source systems that do that too. I, I don't know whether it's a big deal for you guys or not, but there's some interesting things out of Israel too that do that. Oh, really? Uh, any particular ones that come to mind uh, that you... Odix, I think actually. Yeah. yeah. Fabulous. So on to our next one, we've got some very interesting things going on with NPPD leak, right? Yeah. So you've heard about attackers bringing their, their tools, new tools to a compromised system. You've also heard about attackers bringing their own device certs. Sure. 
the compromise system. Well, nowadays we're seeing evidence that attackers are bringing their own entire file systems to particular compromised endpoints. And this is uh, currently uh, gaining popularity specifically in cryptocurrency mining operations. Oh, okay. So, yeah, there's rather than, you know, the problem that attackers face is that they have to build their tools previously for many different flavors of Linux, many different flavors of, of architectures. But now there's this open source tool called Pbrute, which allows you to create one unified set of tools that can operate across any flavor of Linux, any flavor of, of architecture as possible. So what this effectively does is lower the barrier to entry for a lot of different cryptocurrency mining operations. Oh, wow. so we'll probably see this uh, grow in popularity as a result. And and I suppose crypto mining attacks in general will grow if it, this makes it that much easier. Yeah, I mean, the prevailing headwind I think here is how how lucrative is cryptocurrency mining operations going to be in 2023? Given the recent changes to, you know, how what was it, it used to be proof of work, now it's shifting to proof of stake. Um, <laughs> we'll see if that ends up making a dent in any of of this to be, you know, lucrative for for these attackers. Now, how is Pbrook going to work here? Is it uh, just they use this file system instead, or are they replacing the entire file system on the uh, the host that gets attacked? As far as I can tell, it's almost like an overlay. So it's okay. almost like an overlay file system on top of the existing file system. So it's, wow. it's it's almost like another layer of translation that happens. Gotcha. Completely transparent to the, the operating system. They just treat it as user land code, but it makes the attacker's job much easier. And it acts as kind of a obfuscation layer, which mm -hmm. means that now defenders have to figure out what the heck this <laughs> is. Right. Adding uh, that to the question of logs and whatnot that you always have in, in Docker containers too. Like it's generally really hard for an incident responder and it's kind of what I do to get into that Docker and track that Docker container around. And now not only am I tracking the Docker containers around, I'm tracking the enemy's tools around. That's just crazy. Uh, fortunately, yeah. it looks like a lot of the commands are still the same here. So, uh, so at least that won't be so confusing, but. This is almost laughable. I mean, one of the, we're getting so much, a lot of DevOps groups are coming to us talking to us about their, their about dirty containers, and it's specifically you know stuff that's coming out of like GitHub and 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 other repositories. But they're finding it's really hard to manage and and keep their containers clean. As we put that into the CI/CD, it uh, it causes all kinds of problems. Guys like GitGuardian are trying to trying to solve that one. Resilience is another one for for dirty containers specifically. You're saying yeah, yeah. okay, um, that, and that go into the CI/CD so. Oh, geez. <laughs> well, more fun as things are constantly yeah. shifting. Yeah. Yeah. This one bothers me because I used to, I came from Ubuntu a while ago. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, this is certainly going to make that space very interesting. What have we got next? Something called ZeroBot, it looks like here. Right. So this is a brand new uh, botnet that was discovered by Fortinet back in November, it's starting to gain steam and traction targeting vulnerabilities mm -hmm. specifically within IoT devices. At first glance, what makes this kind of stand out versus a lot of the other botnets out there is just the pace that the developers are adding new vulnerabilities into their toolkit to compromise larger and larger sets of devices. Specifically, if we kind of look at the list of vulnerabilities that are present within this toolset, it's mm -hmm. 
you would think that it was you know largely targeting consumer grade devices, but in reality, some of these devices are actually used by small, medium sized businesses. So it'll be interesting to see if the pace of new vulnerabilities that they add into their list of exploits grows rapidly as a function of how popular this botnet truly becomes. So it's it's something to keep an eye out for, certainly. Um, and we'll see how fast this particular botnet eclipses others in, that are competing for the same you know, technology. Small to medium-sized businesses probably aren't doing much in the way of protecting their IoT devices in the first place. So I, I wonder if that just makes for richer targets uh, for the attackers, or if it just happens that these devices are ripe with vulnerabilities and that's just the way it is. It's it, probably a combination of factors, would be my guess. There's, you know, obviously most small, medium-sized businesses, they don't bother to really consider IoT security in their business purchases. So they might, you know, decide on the cheapest options available. And then secondly, even if there was a vulnerability known for a device, they probably don't have the vulnerability management hygiene to apply those patches regularly. I mean, we're talking about, you know, for example, webcams that might be, you know, monitoring like a CCTV uh, system for a local shop or business, and they don't bother to patch it or update it if it's working. Well, I think it's a question of architecture too, though, isn't it? I mean, you've got like the question about webcams here and you've got PHP my, my admin here too, which is kind of cute. I haven't seen that in years. I mean, the, the question of sticking something like that on the internet is, is, you know, that's the first question in my mind is as you were setting things up and you thought to yourself, hey, this is a good idea step back a second and go, wait, does this really need to be on the internet or can this be on like a subnet and, you know, bounced through a proxy of some sort? Well, yeah. and I think that's part of the problem that a lot of companies run into that probably don't have a security person thinking like that in the first yeah, place, maybe. right? It's true. Yeah, I was, I was advising a, uh, of all things, a very big restaurant chain and um, they they have a system called Toast where they're, they have everything on one, on <laughs> You know, everything is connected into one router. They don't have any VLANs. It's you know, and I, it, you know, that was, and they can't they can't figure out why the damn thing doesn't work. Um, but that's that's aside from that. Yeah, for for our enterprise guys, I know this is probably the most overhyped marketing term in the world, but we're we're advising folks to kind of adopt the uh, zero trust architecture, and and especially kind of dealing with a continuous MFA and. You know, kind of a lot of those principles. It's it just just better high better network hygiene is is uh, is good. And a lot of people, you know, when you talk about zero trust, it's you know they kind of look at you with a blank stare. But architecturally, it's, it's a very sound way to move forward. I would second that. I think the the question that I've seen as a you know an individual that talks to people about you know large networks and security and whatnot. You always see it's it's just easier for me to go ahead and like connect all my VPCs, or it's easier for me to connect my clouds, or it's easier for me to connect all my locations. And that that habit is just it's it's ingrained in humans. We just want everything connected so we can get to it, and you know it'll be easier that way. And it's and cool, it's but man, we got it like as cloud providers and people that like deal with architecture, we got to kind of start stepping back from that. Cause I've noticed even a couple of releases lately at different cloud providers that are, you know, Hey, let's go ahead and do this thing or that thing. And we're just making it easier for people to connect VPCs. And I'm thinking that's probably not a good choice. Sure. <laughs> make it, make it easy and make it fast too. Right. I mean, yeah. a, a lot of times an, an IT person setting up some of this uh, stuff will choose the most default, easiest to set up configuration because they're under pressure. They're they're being told, hey, I need this deployed this week, surprise. 
So they just go for whatever gets that job done, putting these things out on the internet, like you said. I, I almost wish we could get the vendors themselves to maybe do a check when you're doing the configuration and saying, are you sure you want to do that? Maybe maybe asking that simple question and, and pointing out to people the dangers of putting dev a device on the internet might help out people that, again, don't have security brain like yours, Nate, to think about these things as they're going through the configuration setup. There's a cool company called Nudge that they're pretty new, pre-branded startup. I think they're Series A. They they do that. They're basically kind of that little evil CISO sitting, sitting on oh, your really? Hey. <laughs> you want to, and so they, they try to nudge you to to make better decisions. Is you know using nudge theory, that's the, the level of nudging you need to give users, especially when you're dealing with shadow IT, dealing with deploying hardware in a, in a network, even a printer. I mean that's one of the best attack vectors you can go after. Sure. But but yeah, it's just it's really just making sure that I think you're right, Robert. You just you need that checklist of. You know, do you need this thing to point to the face the internet, or do you, you know, can it be stuck under a desk with a USB USB cord? I love that idea. I'm going to have to check out Nudge. That sounds pretty cool. And last but not least, we got some more ransomware. I, I, do do we have an episode where there's not ransomware? Right. No supplies here. Right. Exactly. I, I don't know. I mean. So most recently, uh, a French hospital uh, declared that they were hit by a ransomware attack. Attribution still ongoing, so we don't know which particular group was responsible. However, there's been a number of different groups specifically targeting healthcare. Uh, the Hive ransomware group, the Vidar, Daishin, and uh, others have specifically gone after not just U.S. domestic healthcare organizations, but international ones too, clearly. And it remains to be seen, you know, is this going to be a growing trend in the future? I my my bet on this is yes, most definitely, because unlike other industry verticals, you know, denying access to data for for a healthcare organization could potentially be a life or death situation where minutes and hours matter most, mm -hmm. which is precisely what ransomware operators love because it's a higher probability they'll pay the ransom. Right. I'm going to push back, dude. I hear you. And, and I, I don't disagree with some of that. I would like to think that there's some level of humanity there that they don't mean to, but it's just the easiest thing to attack. I've worked with a number of hospitals over the years and to find a hospital that he's, has even a reasonable practice that's going on as far as the architecture and how it's set up and all of the things that go into everything you're doing. Mm. It's just next to impossible. I mean, I, I, I've been, I've worked at McKesson where, you know, we would work with multiple different individuals or multiple different companies and deal with, you know, third parties from the outside. And a lot of those things are just really, really open to begin with. So the hospital is already starting at kind of a, a lame position. And as you move into that, it's only, it's only going to get worse because that thing that needs to be connected to the network that then needs to be connected to the servers that then needs to be connected to the AD that da, 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 da. I feel like it's just happenstance more than it is attention. Yeah. So Nate, you're saying you've never seen a hospital that had even decent network architecture uh, to protect themselves then? I wouldn't say never. Yeah. The only rule I have about never is never using it. But it, it's, it sounds like it's hard. It is one of the worst 3P models that you can possibly ask to hop into. Yeah. Right? Like you are going to have to use 3P regardless of third-party systems, SaaS systems, regardless of what you do. And you as the CISO or you as the security geek at the hospital have 
this much control over the whole thing. <laughs> and you also have this much budget. Try to figure out how to pull that off. Yeah. I've got a really good friend that that works at a hospital here and he's called me before and I'm just like, I, I got nothing. Like, just sorry. Uh, stick it behind a, a raspberry pie and make it act like a firewall, maybe. I, I don't know. <laughs> Ouch. And Chris, that, that sounds like you had some insight there too. Yeah. It's, it's funny because, yeah, that's cybersecurity budgets are about that big, but they spend a lot of money on physical security. But this is this is this one is kind of when when we advise uh, healthcare companies, we always just to kind of reduce the attack surface, I guess, we advise them to put in place, you know, doing automated uh, uh, data classification procedures. So things like all the way from, you know, where how do you protect the, you know, protect the jewels? Uh, and you make sure that, you know, because it gives you less to protect there, but also the other side of it, it's purging. Most hospitals don't purge very well. They try, they tend to keep the information as long as they possibly can. But, you know, sometimes it's some guy that went into the doctor when he was four and now he's 60. That data, that information doesn't, you know, isn't relevant anymore. So a lot of these hospitals need to go through and they need to have better purging policies, especially. But the classification is key because then that way you at least know what you need to protect and what you don't. Well, the regulation there is a problem too, yeah. man. Like, you yeah. know, if, if you've yeah. got PHI, P, you know, PII that can't be purged for 14 years, depending mm-hmm. on the state you're in, that's kind of a pain in the butt. <laughs> <It is. laughs> a, a storage pain in the butt, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But Chris, you made a good point. I mean, the, it seems that most hospitals and their security leaders, physical teams have seemed to have gotten the formula down on, on how to correctly get the budget to make it physically secure. Why do you think that the cyber security leaders are still having a problem getting the same sort of priority given to the security uh, of the networks and the systems? I, I think it's just, they don't, they don't know. It's a skills challenge. The, a lot of the hospitals that we work with, they have a CSO. That person either usually comes out of either law enforcement or- oh you know, to some other, you know, some other field that's relatively. So they know energy. physical security well, right? Yeah. yeah. Or if they do have a CISO, it's going to be, probably be somebody who worked his way up in the hospital configuring firewalls and, and but mostly on the IT side. And so there's really, the, there's a very, very big shortage of cybersecurity practitioners that work in these big hospital networks. And these other hospitals, the you know the Indian Ames Hospital and the Indian Council on Medical Research, they had nobody. So, oh, wow. you know, when they said, "Is it they're they're targets?" I mean, they're good targets. That's why healthcare is 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 such such valuable data you can get out of there, you know, from a PII perspective. But it's also they just they don't do a good job of 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 classifying and and protecting the jewels, and so that's why they're two x more likely to get get compromised in any other industry. Let me ask you a question, Chris. Do you feel like as you move through security and, and Darian and, and Robert as well, as you move through your career in security and you move through your career in cybersecurity, the further I've gotten, the more security to me feels like it's really a job of communication. How do I communicate to you the reality of this thing that we've arbitrarily termed risk and then mm-hmm. get that to the point where you actually understand and can evaluate what that means to you as the chief surgeon, chief resident, chief, whatever at a hospital to figure out, you know, how do we do this thing? And is this really like, how big a deal is it to me right now? 
Yeah, it goes back to what they don't know. And I think there's been a renaissance in terms of how strategic is the CISO, especially in highly regulated industries. It used to be that the security guys were the guys that sat in the dark closet and you know, and they were, everybody was afraid of them because, and if they talked to them, it'd slow everything down. That was, going back to your point earlier, Robert, it's, we're seeing that the CISO is, especially in very large organizations, the CISO is now reporting not just to the CEO, but also to the board. Mm-hmm. And so they have to, so there be, so you're absolutely right. You've got to be a better communicator. You got to be a better leader. Um, and we, we look at, we have um, uh, at TAG, we have this thing called the six tribes of CISOs. And we're finding that um, they go all the way from the technology guy, the vision guy, the former law enforcement, all the way, you know, six across the board. The ones that we're seeing more and more are, are the are the executives and the leaders that hmm. they may not have 30 years of cybersecurity experience, but they have a good team and they're really solid executives that can, you know, represent the company to the board. And, you know, I think now we're starting to get more, um, uh, more of the CISOs actually getting, getting into being more involved with auditing and, and uh, you know, mm. the audit process in terms of financials and, and especially with public companies, they're, they're incredibly, incredibly important. So it's that leadership experience. Yeah. And, and Darian, yeah. you and Chris were just on a panel recently where you saw the effects of people not being able to communicate security well, right? What was that? What was all behind all that? Well, Darian was, took pity on me. He was kind enough to join a, a panel I, I was doing for a, <laughs> for the MENA region um, with the Department of State. And we were talking about digital transformation or country digitization and some of the challenges with upgrading infrastructure from sometimes 2.5 to 5G. It was really kind of what are the what are the considerations you have to have when you want to start a project like that. And a lot of it was to assuage these countries from going with China's Belt and Road. It was more, you know, there are other op- op- options and other opportunities. And so one of the panels, I always make sure we have a very deep panel on cybersecurity. What are the considerations there? They kept coming back and said, well, do you really need to talk about cybersecurity? Nobody understands it. Nobody understands it. And uh, <laughs> this, is, this is literally, actually, it was last week that we did the panel. And just yesterday, I saw that there was a massive Chinese attack on the telecom infrastructure. Oh, no. <laughs> and so... And so, you know, I, I did my, sent them an email. So yeah, it's kind of my told you so email, <laughs> but now I'm, now I'm getting up at three o'clock in the morning to go talk to these guys and help. Get oh, wow. <laughs> if you want to dive deeper into this week's trending threats, be sure to check out the interactive Fletch newsletter and trending threats app to see all the stories we talked about and more. Now on to our special guest interview. Nate, thank you so much for coming out and joining the show and uh, uh, all, all the great commentary so far. In fact, some of the things you mentioned are probably going to lead a little bit into okay. <laughs> uh, what we're talking about next. So you've been seeing a lot of need for people to really be able to, well, for one, build an S-bomb, but then actually do something with it. So for folks uh, that uh, are not familiar with the acronym S-B-O-M, which stands for Software Building Materials, tell us a little bit about uh, what that is and why people need it if they don't realize that they do. Right. And so one of the things I've been trying to figure out and get my head around personally for the last year, year or two really is this concept of what is a software bill of materials and why do we care? 
people who've been doing this work for a long time. Uh, there's a there's huge amounts of books and things and, and academic articles on this, but the reality is as engineers and enterprise leaders, I don't know that we're doing a heck of a lot with it. So mm. the first thing to do with an SBOM is really to understand what's inside of a thing that you own. And by a thing that you own, I'm specifically leaving it open because that thing could very easily be an application. Mm. It could be an embedded system. Maybe you've got a car that has it. Uh, for instance, when Log4j came out, it turned out that my oven was actually at risk for Log4j. Wait, um, I, I am a cook. I, I love to cook quite a bit. And my remote connected oven, believe it or not, was susceptible to Log4j. Oh my God. And here I am sitting in my office going, well, I, damn it. <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to split that subsection of my network into multiple sections so that well, had you, you, had you connected the oven directly to the internet. Yeah. Oh, God, no. <laughs> God, no. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that probably have because it was just easier and they wanted it to work on the app and yada, 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 yada. Right. It becomes this really interesting question when we start talking embedded systems, though, because I don't know what you guys have done in your past lives, but certainly all of us have worked at a place where we had some sort of a manufacturing floor or we had this thing that was connected to these other things. Yep. And it's just easy to use embedded Java and off you go. And as we look at things that I've seen personally, like different different instances or different incidents or events. I mean, I, it's been amazing to me over 10 years, how many times a Java developer will accidentally drag the project back into the folder. And then all of a sudden you have multiple copies of the, of the project itself being deployed directly to the specific endpoint. And then all of a sudden your SBOM becomes really questionable about what's where and why. So this SBOM ends up being kind of your first step into what do I actually have and why do I have it and what do I do with it? Now, the Department of Commerce did a really good paper recently on what has to be in an SBOM for the government. They, they did an excellent job from the point of view, as at very least it had, you know, these are the things that you need to have. You need to know who the manufacturer was. You need to know when it was released. You need to know the version that you're looking at, the code that you happen to be looking at right now. And it would be really good if you could get a hash of the thing that you're looking at so that we can evaluate whether it actually is this thing over here or not. And as we went through it, as I went through it, it was interesting to me to like see how how variable people's opinions were of even that. And so we look at, oh, again, for Jay, and it becomes kind of this question about, well, wait, how many people haven't actually fixed this yet or even gotten to the point where they can evaluate it yet? And will this be around for a long time? And man, I've got no answers. Right. <laughs> well, uh, so this week, uh, Dark Reading reported that it's been a year. Since Log4j yeah. was discover, release, uh, whatever term we want to use, and the majority of most organizations still have not patched it yet. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's obviously a huge problem. And there are tools to help with it. We, we in mm -hmm. Fletch integrates with a tool called Sneak, but there is a plethora of tools, both free oh, yeah. and commercial, to help people build these out, right? There definitely are. But I, I still kind of wonder if anybody's done like an internet search recently, just a swap of the internet, how many of these things are still hanging out on the internet, just laying around? Oh, like use Shodan or something like that? Yeah, uh, Shodan's right? a good yeah. one. I know they had it open for a while where you could just go ahead and search your subnet just to make sure. But one of the things we saw last year, and it was funny to me that you were talking about this year in Christmas, because I specifically remember last year at Christmas being like all spun up over this. But it's great to look at that and go, wow, you know, we've made so much progress. And I feel like at the time we really thought we had, 
but stepping back from it a year now and looking at the whole community, I talk about hospitals. Uh, well, hell, I mean, CISA just released that that breach, what, two weeks ago now? Yep. Yep. Based on Love for J, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's a hard problem to solve. And as we get into it, there are plenty of solutions out there. I think Sneak's a great one that have the ability to look at the things that are in there, in your stuff, your code, and evaluate where you're going. I'd like to see more of that going forward, though. And I think there's a big opportunity for customers and, and companies to begin to, to look at how to do this the right way. Right. And Chris, you look like you had, we're chomping at the bit there. I'm, I'm, I'm violently agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 a, lot of, a lot of the things that most organizations right now, it's, it's really not a problem of not having this as an important thing to do. It's just, they just don't know what they've got. You know, they don't, they don't realize that, oh my God, my oven's connected to, connected to the internet. Um, <laughs> a lot of, you know, most companies don't understand that because like, especially big companies, They'll have hundreds of thousands of, of systems out there connected, whether it's a, an employee's house or a lot of different systems, and they, they just can't find them. So inventory is, is the key to this. But I think, though, President Biden's executive order vis-a-vis log for, or around um, S-bombs, mm-hmm. is, that's going to have a huge impact on businesses. And it's going to make it even more relevant because of the fact the SEC typically takes those those types of executive orders and they actually try to enforce it with public companies. Yep. And so that will that will drive drive a lot of things around compliance and auditing and all the goodness that you want out of it. At least for the public companies. And, uh, yeah, exactly. for our, At least for public companies, yeah. Right. So, Nate, it's not enough, though, to just get that bill of materials. Well, you've seen no, you have to do of- something with it, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and to be fair, I think you made a really good point there. I mean, we barely ever talk about this concept, Chris, where it's, you know, hey, what about the user? I mean, like, if I had been directly connected to a company's uh, network, is my oven now a pivot point? You know, really random, weird things like that happen when we all stay home and work at home. Back to the comment we made earlier, all of us made about, you know, not connecting huge networks together. And gee, maybe it'd be a really good idea not to do wide area networks like we've been doing historically. Zero trust is a great thing. Wouldn't it be a cool thing if just because I happen to have an oven on my internal home network that I like to turn on occasionally while I'm doing work, (laughs) that it's not connected to the the corporate internet. And for me at home, I'm a security geek. I set it up that way. So it's all sectioned off in its own separate thing and no big deal. But how does a normal person do that? And should the security geek at, you know, take your pick of enterprise, know how to do that or even ask that question? I just want to be on the phone with you when you call your IT guys to ask them to put MDM on your oven. (laughs) (laughs) It it begs the question of, can you? I mean, if it's an embedded system, what's the fix? The mitigation is honestly, take it off the network. Right. Or isolate it. Yeah. Yeah. So what else can folks do once they get those S-bombs as far as like figuring out now that we have this S-bomb, what's actually critical? What do we have to fix? So for me, I mean, I think it's really interesting as we look at the data that comes out of the SBOM or the data that would come out of, hey, what are we developing anyway? As we start to look at the deeper, wider questions about, hey, by the way, we've got these five libraries. And did you know that there's only like three utilizations of any one of them? And gee, wouldn't it be easier if we just use this library over here? Uh, There's also questions about in some cases, I've run into data retention and where is that actual, where is that data sitting? Mm-hmm. Is, is the data provenance for this thing actually appropriate? Are we actually sitting on data, for instance, in Canada or in the EU that ought to be in the US based on appropriate understandings of what data goes where? 
And because we've included a lot of open source libraries, we may not know anything about those, not to mention licensing and a bunch of other things that we may have, whoops, breached because that thing yeah. just didn't really do what we expected it to do. So it to me, it, it's really an interesting DevOps question. Like there's so many things that you can help a developer with. And it's, it's frankly one of those really win points for a security geek to be able to walk into a DevOps team and go, hey, let me help you guys. Let me show you, let me give you something that you can use in your everyday so that you don't need to come find me and and try to step out of that closet, if it, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so are you actually showing them then how to use vulnerability lists and other things like that? Uh, and where do you even get them for that matter? Is, is that what the process is with the devs? So for me, I mean, right now we're talking about my personal experience, not my corporate or, or anything like sure, that. Yeah. yeah, but there's there's lots of things out there that will give you open source opportunities or open source vulnerabilities. We've got Salsa and Guac right now from Google. Really interesting stuff, connecting some of that to some of the really interesting uh, Aqua open source vulnerability stuff, as well as MISP and other things like that that allow you to begin to plan out an architecture and see what the different things actually are appropriate to that. Man, it's just, there's so many little pieces. I was, I, I actually was speaking at another location recently and they, they asked me about this and they're like, well, what do you think? I'm like, there's just so much work to do. And they're like, but we've done a lot of work. And I went, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's where I'm glad to see that a lot of vendors are out there trying to help with this problem. I mean, even if Fletch, we let you use a certain amount of the tool for free just to check for things like that, to check your vulns against a list of, threats that are out there, some of the ones we talked about today. I, I really want to see more of this from the community. I want to see people actually making stuff, uh, quick checks like this readily available so that people don't have to worry about, well, uh, okay, I, I know I have this thing, but what does it really mean for me? Well, plus there's so much information out there, so much, especially in large enterprises, CISOs are just, you know, they'll go to the board and say, great news, guys. We, we, we fixed 12,000 vulnerabilities this month. The next question is, well, how many more do you have? Oh, it's 6 million. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Oh, we're working hard. (laughs) (laughs) And that prioritization is difficult. I mean, nobody gets all of their vulns fixed. Figuring out which ones you really need to get fixed today, like your oven, are usually things that people struggle with. (laughs) No, that was just an unplug. <laughs> you, you didn't patch your oven? No. Uh, so no. <laughs> That's awesome insight on S-bombs. I know a lot of our listeners are up and coming technology and security leaders too, Nate. What advice would you give for um, the future security leaders uh, out there that are trying to do things right in a, in a landscape that is changing so fast right now? So... As a historic security leader, like going way back, you know, it was interesting to have my own company and it was really interesting to be the person that did stuff. And we really, I, I hate to be this way, but like, we didn't have a CISO. I, I, I just did it. Right. And that was really cool and no big deal. And we started writing papers and doing talks and like life progressed and, you know, into the, you know, 2005 and all of a sudden this, this title CISO comes up and we start adding people to the, you know, I'm a CISO now. Okay, cool. But as we look at that, I really think we did the community a massive disservice. Yeah. And I I say that not because there shouldn't be a CISO, and I I apologize to all the CISOs that are listening right now. (laughs) I really don't think a CISO should exist or should need to exist in a perfect world. I think the CISO really should be 
the, the head of architecture or the, the mantle uh-huh. of CISO probably really ought to be in the head of architecture. And the reality is, A, we don't have people that have actually been trained in all the sides of technology to be able to pull that off, but it may actually be too much for one person to do. So we have to figure out how to, how to mitigate that particular weirdness with humans. Right. So as we look at like, you know, things I would tell incoming CISOs or incoming individuals, it is a rough road. And the reality is that development needs to be your best friend. Mm. You can't do your job without architecture and development and operations. And this concept of, and I've seen it repeatedly, where a CISO will walk into a gig and go, that Robert, he didn't do that thing correctly. And we ought to fire him. Oh, God. (laughs) just no and as you get into that it's really a question of how do i partner with you how do i communicate with you how do i make it apparent to you that that's not the right choice and then how do i give you the 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 space to understand what's going to happen if you do this thing um i had a an individual at one point bring a laptop to a a not okay country (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. And the, the laptop had been compromised by the time it got back. And Ugh. you look at that and you go, we told this person that they weren't allowed to do it. They did it. And now what? What was the outcome there? Well, you know, honestly, we just took the laptop, we formatted it, you know, no big deal. It was fine. It went into a box of, hey, nifty stuff to look at if we ever have time to do really deep forensics. But, you know, and then we gave this person a new laptop. And they were a little bit miffed that they got a new laptop and that, you know, but, you know, we planned all the data. So all of her, all of this person's information went to the right place and we got all the information back on the laptop in an hour and no big deal. But it's important to communicate that reality out to someone, even when it's something as silly as like, you know, I'm taking a laptop to a country I really ought not take anything to. Well, and I suspect that it was much for the same reason that we were talking about with hospitals. It was just easier for that person to take their laptop with them than go through whatever they perceived the process to be. Yeah, right. Pain. Yeah. (laughs) And I get it. And like, and that's kind of where I get back to communication. Like always communicate, always write things down, always make sure that all of the things out there are appropriate. We've got the new chat AI stuff that like will helpfully write you an entire um, governance policy list, which made me laugh this weekend. I, I can't tell you how many times like write this up. Show me a social media. Holy crap. <laughs> That's actually good. <laughs> That's awesome. But, oh. It's silly things like that. I mean, come on, you know, the, the world progresses. So I don't know. <laughs> Well, they, they, they say that those uh, AI uh, uh, bots will be writing code for us too. So maybe we won't have to worry about the, I don't know. I think we'll be dealing with devs for quite a while. So the compassion there is definitely going to be key. This has been a great chat, Nate. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to our listeners joining us today as well. We will see you again next week. With that, thank you, Darian and Chris as well for your insight and have a great week, everybody. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. Next week's guest is Todd Inskeep, a CISO and cybersecurity executive who helps businesses balance their objectives with the need for protection against modern security threats. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, 
Be sure to subscribe to Fletcher's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats. <laughs>